Good evening, everyone. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this event and to join you in welcoming Tessa Jowell to the LSE. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the LSE, for those of you who don't know me. And uh, as I've indicated before, one of the great pleasures of being director of the LSE is the chance to be able to welcome such extraordinary new faculty members as Tessa Jowell. We're celebrating tonight Tessa's appointment as a professor in practice in LSE Cities. Let me pause for a moment to say LSE Cities is itself one of the treasures of the LSE, a really extraordinary program that combines social science knowledge with thinking about design and governance and practical action to create better cities for the future. Tessa is joining LSE Cities. Um, in the, with the title Professor in Practice. And you might say, Professor in Practice of Cities? Yes. And you could say also Professor in Practice of Governance. And happily, the issues that Tessa has dealt with are, have been core issues of LSE Cities before and will be ones that return to the agenda. Tessa is a born a Londoner, but went to school in Aberdeen, studied at the universities of Edinburgh, Aberdeen, and Goldsmiths College in London. She's had a long path to the LSE, in other words. Prior to becoming a member of parliament, she'd been a child care officer in Brixton, then a family therapist and psychiatric social worker at Maudsley Hospital. As a member of parliament, she has represented the London constituency of Dulwich and West Norwood since 1992. It's originally just Dulwich, right? Originally, yeah, good. Boundary okay. changes. I'm learning these things. While a <laughs> member of Parliament, Tessa served on the opposition front bench until 1997 when she was appointed to the government, becoming the first ever Minister for Public Health and implementing the widely acclaimed Sure Start program to support childhood and early infancy. She served as a minister throughout the last Labour government, including time as a minister for health, employment, London, women, the cabinet office, and paymaster general. Eight of her 13 years in government were in the cabinet. As secretary of state at the Department for Culture, Media, and Sport, she pioneered London's successful bid for the Olympic Games in 2012, and is credited with bringing the entire government behind the bid. Not only that, she brought LSE Cities behind the bid in the person of Ricky Burdett, who's here tonight. When the bid was won in 2005, Tessa became Olympics Minister, in addition to her other cabinet responsibilities and oversaw the governance, secured agreement to the budget, procurement of all the venues, the international, national, and regional programs, and funding for elite athletes. She served on the Olympic Board for the 10-year duration of the Olympic and Paralympics project. Subsequent to stepping down as Shadow Olympics Minister in 2012, Tessa was appointed to lead a global campaign to ensure an integrated approach to the early childhood years in the post-millennium development goals framework. Now, there are those people who need no introduction and those people who have done such wonderful things that they should be introduced over and over again. Tessa falls into the latter category. And as you will have noted, this connects her to a host of LSE interests, from the broad questions of international development, the questions of childhood and human development, to the issues of cities, in which she's played such an important role. I'm very pleased we have here with us tonight um, Uta Wieland and Thomas McTusick from the Alfred Herrhausen Foundation, which has been a key supporter of LSE Cities, making it possible to do all of this work. 
I'm not going to say much more. Tessa was appointed a dame by Queen Elizabeth in 2012 for her political and charitable services. And she will speak to us tonight on democracy, decency, and devolution. Please join me in welcoming Professor Tessa Jolly. Craig, well, thank you very much indeed. Um, just get the uh, just get the props organised. <laughs> Um, and can I just begin by saying what an indescribable pleasure it is to work with you and uh, Ricky and Tony Travers, uh, people who've guided uh, my political thinking over years. And of course, Richard Rogers, who I'm so touched is here uh, this evening. So thank you, Richard, and my family and uh, all my um, amazing team of helpers. Um, from Westminster, so and everybody else as well. So thank you all very much indeed for being here this evening. And it is an extraordinary pleasure to uh, be a now a professor of practice at LSE. And I hope that in this inaugural lecture, I can apply my experience of 38 years as a elected. Uh, representative uh, to respect both my hosts, LSE Cities, obviously, and uh, the Department of Government. I've fought 12 elections over those 38 years, and I may just have one or two more in me. <laughs> um, in this lecture, under the themes of democracy, devolution, and decency, I want to talk this evening about the rupture between the public and politics, and the chronic dissatisfaction with the actions of government and the resultant sense of alienation, but also how there is one more important uh, preposition to add to Abraham Lincoln's exhortation of government of the people, for the people, and by the people, and that is government with the people. Trust in politics, politicians and the governing class is at a rock bottom. There's cynicism, suspicion about motive and a feeling that most politicians live in a world different from everybody else's. It's open season on politics and politicians. But in praise of representation, the sacred bond between the elected and those that they serve. I say this, that in 23 years as a member of parliament, I have never walked through the central lobby or the chamber of the House of Commons without a sense of awe at the responsibility I hold for the 80,000 people that I represent. A relationship that at times becomes deeply intimate, as uh, just last week I was walking down Brixton High Street to be grabbed by the arm by a woman who looked in my eyes 
and said, have you got my letter, Tessa? Is it going to be all right? And this is a part of politics which is too often disregarded. It's not always easy. I'm there as their representative and not their delegate. It's a role and function at its best when a thread of engagement with individuals, often with unimaginable problems, runs through and links their experience to the big decisions about legislation and policy. What are often derided as the social work functions of MPs are in fact vital in ensuring that legislation is animated by the ambition, the frustration, the fortitude and ingenuity of lived lives. But there's also a vagueness about exactly what an MP's job should be. The balance between local activist, caseworker, legislator and campaigner is undefined. Are MPs too young or are they too old? Are they less competent if they've done what are generally regarded as proper jobs pre-Parliament? While trust in MPs remains low, it is trust in your MP that has fallen significantly and has fuelled the campaign for recall. And this is something that we should all worry about. At the same time, we hear much about the pace of change and the lack of control that people feel over what's happening to them, of the fear and insecurity that this creates, and the sense that politics has no answers, that people are on their own. And along with that, we see the fracture of two-party predominance and the sharp decline in tribal party loyalty. In some ways, national politics has become more representative over my 38 years, and I'm especially proud of the way that Labour has promoted women candidates and MPs, including by the once controversial means of all women shortlists. When I became a Member of Parliament, there were more MPs called John or Jonathan than there were all the women in the House of Commons put together. That's changed, of course, but the pace of change is too slow. Don't let's ever be patient about uh, the pace of change. And the ease with which Westminster becomes disconnected from the burning day-by-day concerns of those that we represent is one of the biggest contemporary challenges to our parliamentary democracy. At the same time, it is important not to over-dramatise the position. In the 1970 election, the turnout was 72%. In 2010, it was 65% a decline, but not a collapse. By contrast, we can point to the turnout at the recent Scottish referendum, which was 85%. More worrying is the decline in participation among younger voters. Only 44% of 18 to 24-year-olds voted in 2010, and declining support for the two larger parties 
which in 1970 took 90% of the vote, but only 65% in 2010. For my party and the Conservatives, there is a massive challenge to continue being parties of government while engaging and properly representing the mainstream majority. Of course, the sense of connection and relevance to people is, is important. Often it exists in more unspoken ways than it does in highly publicised intention. Get on and do it, people say, and then tell people you've done it. It's so much better than heralding intention before anything has changed. And, of course, the suffragettes reminded us that it was deeds, not words, that mattered. I'm actually concerned that more people are entering Parliament without having worked in the world beyond politics. I had a professional career spanning 20 years before I became an, M uh, an MP, and I've drawn heavily on that experience, most of it... Uh, uh, the, the, on, on that experience and most of all I have done both uh, in Parliament and in Government. The importance of relationships between users of public services and their providers. The small changes uh, one is constantly reminded of that can bring huge benefit uh, to vulnerable people. And I'll tell you that training as, and working as a psychiatric social worker in a very deprived part of South London that I now represent was a daily reminder of that. The importance of routines in overseeing the delivery of policy. And perhaps most important of all, the constant reminder, often missing in politics, that the speech itself doesn't bring about the change it promises. It is systematic and well-planned execution of that. And when I was leading the reorganisation of social care in Birmingham, uh, between Birmingham and the King's Fund 25 years ago, I learned most by staying overnight in all of their very many residential homes. And I can tell you that nothing informs policymaking better than experiencing in that slightly artificial way, how it is actually delivered. Seeing firsthand how the instinctive humanity of residential care staff is sometimes outlawed by the rule book uh, issued by the central department. When I was first elected as a local councillor in 1971, the purpose of politics on the left was to spend money and to spend more money than those on the right. <laughs> the input invariably was more important than anything the spending achieved. The amount of money spent was of itself evidence of success. But the fact is that money is still being spent on the general presumption that once allocated, it will always be needed. And I think that this is a pessimistic view about the potential need for investment to secure change in people's circumstances and opportunities and produces consequent long-term waste in earmarking resources which may no longer be as relevant as they were when they were first identified. 
The other great failure, of course, in those years was what became the producer domination of services. It left a legacy, which we live with even now, of services organised more for the convenience of those who deliver them than for the convenience of those who use them, particularly important now as the pattern of people's lives, uh, working lives, have changed so dramatically. Why else, for instance, would libraries not be open routinely on a Sunday? Why would most post offices be closed on Saturday afternoons and Sundays? Why is there so little co-location of post offices, libraries, GP surgeries and schools? Given this background, the first thing to remember is that the purpose of politics is to bring about change by getting things done. That requires leadership, and the qualities of successful leaders are well documented. But there are others as well, and they've all been particular aspects of leadership that have, that have mattered to me over my years in Parliament. Never forgetting the acrid smell of poverty. Never forgetting what ambition, frustrated ambition, looks like in the eyes of a young, unemployed person. Ensuring that clear values are embedded in every decision. Understanding that progressive change is dynamic and that as one goal is realised, another challenging horizon will always emerge the capacity to be empathetic and emotionally intelligent and being able to tolerate discomfort. And as I've always felt, and Craig, you mentioned uh, Sure Start, a national childcare and nurture programme which I was lucky enough to establish in government, it was important and this is, um, this is a point with many uh, broader relevances. It was important not to become transfixed by the bureaucracy and organisation, but always, through all the good organisation, to be able to smell the babies. When I look back over the reasons that the Olympic and Paralympic Games became such a hallmark of success... I recall the observation attributed to Harry Truman that it is remarkable what a small group of people can achieve together if they do not care who gets the credit. That also is a very important point in modern political leadership. Or as Margaret Mead put it slightly differently, but goes straight to my point, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful and committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Building a team which is fit to achieve the task in hand does require strong leadership, but it's also vital to share success. Rather ironically, I used to say to the teams that I led in government that everything, just remember, everything that goes wrong is my fault, but all success is to your credit. And sometimes I felt <laughs> quite unjustly I was taking the beating um, because everything that went wrong was my fault. 
You need to have rigour in selecting the best people and trusting their competence, giving them the freedom and the confidence to get on with the job in hand. So how is it against that background that we can add government with the people to the other of Lincoln's essentials? Well, we have to start by recognising the limits of top-down government and celebrating and encouraging the untidiness but also the startling effectiveness of local initiative. The principle is subsidiarity, a term often used in connection with the EU but overlooked in our domestic politics. It involves devolution to the most local available level and that has to be the guiding principle of public policy. This approach isn't just a sense of policies or tactics, but it involves a radical change in the relationship between politicians and people, no longer passive recipients of services, but active agents with control over decisions that directly affect their lives. And our cities particularly London, since the creation of the mayor and the GLA, has been leading the way in that. But far more needs to be done. The clichés about the need for a new kind of politics are just so tedious because they seldom translate into action. It's normally no more than a speech followed by short-lived media comment. But the willingness of the public to engage when the cause is important enough has been shown to an extraordinary extent, as I said a moment or two ago, in the Scottish referendum. People knew it was about them, their children, that it really mattered, and their votes counted. That's what animated the debate. And I will never forget uh, the gamesmaker who said to me during the Olympics... When I asked how it was she was getting up every morning and getting on a train from Peterborough, to which she returned each day at about midnight only to get up and get on a train at three in the morning to come back to the Olympics the next day. And she said, you have to understand, Tessa, just how much people are prepared to give as long as they're not doing it because the government tells them that they have to. And this neatly explains the failure of the big society, a progressive ambition disastrously presented and executed. And that's why this, this, this really captures the big contemporary questions for politicians of the left. The nature of social democracy in a time of constrained budgets. It is no longer the case that spending of itself is enough to persuade the public of our good intentions. Increasingly, what is done is as important as how it is done, but that does in turn open up the great possibility for creativity and innovation. So let me go back to devolution. There was always a tussle within the new Labour government, of which I was part, which is best summarised as a sort of heart-head tussle. The devolution heart, arguing the case with passion, 
more power to communities and so forth. But the centralising head agonising over the trade-off between localism, the postcode lottery and inequity. It was all right to devolve limited powers to Scotland and more limited powers to Wales and indeed to local government. But giving up control is not what most people come into politics for and that needs to change. Why, as one colleague said, win a general election only to give away the power that you have just won? So if we are to lower the political centre of gravity in this way, we have to confront the postcode issue. It requires the matching of national ambition to local circumstances, something that can, in fact, only be done on a case-by-case basis. And Simon Stevens, the new head of NHS England, intriguingly suggested that the N in NHS stands both for national and for neighbourhood. And there is enormous possibility in that reformulation. The rich inventiveness of local government is in fact so often under-recognised by media commentators who dance to the Westminster Fandango. And it's a curious paradox, I think, that public trust levels are so much higher in local newspapers, local radio and television, but that so much of the focus settles on the interrelationship between the Westminster media and Westminster politicians. And is it any wonder that the sense of alienation in the public is compounded when they feel so much of the time that they are uninvited eavesdroppers on a private conversation? But if a progressive and successful devolution strategy is to be achieved, new ways of organising the design and delivery of services will need to be created It so happens that many diligent constituency members of Parliament are outstanding localists, and it's essential to preserve in government these skills of community connection and skills of community organisation against the riptide of the Westminster current, the Westminster and indeed the Whitehall current so that, as leaders, politicians become enablers of more local power and agency. And I think that this new way uh, will be articulated by a three-way interaction between responsible business, civil society and local government, which will maximise the effectiveness of government expenditure at a time of severe restraint which is likely to last for the foreseeable future and to be absolutely candid, a general election win for Labour will not change this fiscal landscape. First, we have the potential for a concordat between responsible business that recognises that social purpose also drives commercial success, creating resilience and customer and employee loyalty. We see this, for example, in the growing trend for employers of their own volition, but with strong public encouragement, to pay not just the minimum wage, but the far more equitable 
living wage and the London living wage in London just uprated to £9.15 an hour. Decent treatment at work, starting with decent pay, will be at the heart of this new social contract. Secondly, and alongside this, we see stronger civil society bodies and associations sharing in the delivery of services to their local communities. We adopted this approach with the Sure Start Children's Centres, which Labour set up, complementing existing parental and childcare support for vulnerable children with strong parental involvement in the design of services. The third element, of course, is the state, whether national or local government, which is steadily more efficient by being more devolved, achieving more for less, transferring more power down to more local tiers of government and promoting stronger collaboration between central and local government, enabling, wherever possible, intervening only where necessary. In this uh, collaboration will lie the solution, for example, to the very large numbers of elderly people who, against their own wishes, have to stay in hospital or be admitted to hospital because of a failure of imagination, local flexibility and collaboration to arrange for their care at home. Public services will face tough funding reductions, whoever wins the next election, but the best and most realistic local authorities are already planning on that basis and reconfiguring services. Spending less sometimes means doing better and building more value, for example, through uh, co-production, as in Sunderland or Oldham, the Triborough shared service arrangement in West London, or the way in which Lambeth, as one of the cooperative councils, is now tendering services to community trusts. And there's much about the disciplines and incentives of private sector delivery that public services can learn from. But so too is their reciprocal benefit, private from public service traditions, in acquiring and applying the disciplines of transparency, accountability, openness and proportionate reward all of which are requirements of public service delivery. While the march of new Labour to 13 years in government after 18 years in opposition is well documented and well framed by the mantra uh, of the many, not the few, the future, not the past, strong leadership, not drift, the transformation in local government has been much quieter and achieved remarkable successes, which are too often um, undocumented. And a bit of autobiography here, and also a cautionary tale. I was elected by accident to Camden Council in 1971. I agreed to be a paper candidate in a ward that I was assured it was impossible for the Labour candidate to win and found myself elected. I then served for, 13 year, for, for 15 years, on which 
uh, on two occasions the homes and livelihoods of Camden councillors like me uh, were under threat of surcharge by the district auditor. The first occasion was when we acted in defiance of the then Tory government's Housing Finance Act, which removed local determination of rents from local government control. And the second, perhaps more dramatically, was in 1979, when we set a local minimum income guarantee to reach an end locally to the winter of discontent dispute. But the 80s and it was just kicking off at this point. The 80s saw the battle between the social democratic mainstream and the ideological hard left of Labour and militant in cities like London, <coughs> Manchester, Sheffield, where almost every decision was ideologically driven. It was a truly terrible time. And I well remember leaving the council meeting with police protection in the face of attempts to intimidate those of us who uh, took a different view from the hard left majority. The behaviour of those councillors in a whole uh, number of local authorities in putting ideology before the delivery of local services meant that where they were Labour authorities, Labour was punished for decades. For example, Ted Knight ceased to be the leader of Lambeth Council in 1986. But it wasn't until 20 years later, in 2006, in the local election campaign, that his name was no longer mentioned as a byword for profligacy, ideology and disregard for local people. And that's a salutary reminder of the frailty of public confidence. The provision of basic services in an efficient way is really for any councillor in the public mind, their licence to practice. There's an important and bigger point here, which is about tribalism. Decent local politics tend not to be sharply ideological, but rather grounded in community values and commitment to that very close community. And this requires the Labour Party uh, in local government to reach beyond its core and embrace people who may not be Labour Party joiners, but share Labour's values. In my own constituency of Dulwich and West Norwood, our Labour Party has always been a preeminent community organisation and indeed, in each general election since 2001, more of the volunteer helpers in the campaign were non-party members who had been closely involved in local campaigns, uh, more volunteer helpers, non-party members, than paid-up card-carrying members of the Labour Party. A few years ago, I was inspired by the work of London citizens and Arnie Graff of the Industrial Areas Foundation in America to train as a community organiser, learning more about the systematic way in which this base for community life uh, could be developed. And we should remember that Labour is at its best when it represents the mainstream majority and when its membership also reflects that. 
And this is one of the many reasons that I welcome the decision to select Labour's candidate uh, for the London mayoral election by a qualified primary. Labour supporters, rather than just card-carrying Labour Party members, for the first time being able to take part in the selection. But devolution will only work if the devolved institutions command public confidence and aren't seen as imposing new and unwanted tiers of 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 political bureaucracy. Because I think we have to face there is very little public appetite for more politicians. The era of big authority reorganisation is also, I hope, over. The agenda, rather, is and ought to be increasingly collaboration between councils in delivering services and the creation and strengthening of city regional authorities to take on strategic functions from Whitehall and Westminster. There's a big debate and a current debate about devolution to city regions within which the argument for more powers for the London Mayor and London Assembly features strongly. It cannot be right uh, that in circumstances where 18.5% of national tax take is exported by London to the rest of the country and that London retains only 7% of the revenue it raises, while New York retains over 50%. And this must be one of the key negotiations for the next government. London faces big threats as the world's number one global city, threats that arise from the failure to provide enough homes for Londoners, to upgrade its infrastructure, to match the increased demand for services in a city of of 10 million by 2030. We should also, though, be acutely concerned by the division of London between the very rich and the welfare-dependent or in-work poor, and the virtual impossibility of the majority of young working people to be able to buy a home in London. Many of you here, or your sons, daughters, nieces and nephew. The tensions are well documented in Deborah Mattinson's study, um, London Thinks, which most disturbingly underlines the the disaffection of 18 to 35-year-olds who are drawn to live in London for work and other reasons, but once here, feel on the margin, insecure and pessimistic about their futures and just want to leave. London may be the the greatest city on earth, but it's not the greatest city on earth if you're young and on a low income. In reviewing the Government of London, it's important to be clear that London is not claiming, nor should it claim, city status Uh, separate city status, but greater fiscal autonomy, which is consistent with its interdependency with the rest of the UK. This is one of the many reasons why HS2 is important. Fast, easy links with the cities of the West Midlands and the north of England, which will prevent London overheating and promote their economic growth. London is the primary economic generator, 
but other cities are also underperforming, with only one, apart from London, and that's Bristol, performing above the average national GVA per head. This underperformance arises from underinvestment, which again makes the uh, point for the importance of HS2 and HS3 in radically improving transport links between the cities of the north, from Liverpool to Hull, as well as their links to the Midlands and London. But it's also uh, important to remember that several measures of further and substantial devolution would not require further legislation. So it becomes wholly and solely a test of political will. So why not devolve each of the following to uh, the relevant local authority? Funding for further education, skills and apprenticeships, which could include the funding that for London is currently allocated by the Skills Funding Agency and the Education Funding Agency. Spending by UK Trade and Investment, Funding for regional growth, economic development and business support, which is currently made available to the London Local Enterprise Partnership. Commissioning of the work, work programme. If we were able to achieve that, you would put upwards of £10 billion into the local and regional economies. And I defy anyone to argue that to decentralise in that way would not mean that every one of those £10 billion and uh, counting uh, would work harder. It's inconceivable that by stripping out the layers of bureaucracy which frame the relationship between central government and the local initiatives exercised in each of, under the, uh, in each of these we would not be able to win on two fronts. More local determination closer to the communities while extracting more value. And what about the further devolution by the GLA to the boroughs? And here again, the GLA and boroughs in London have substantial latitude to exchange functions with one another. And the GLA can, with consent, delegate its responsibilities to London boroughs. London boroughs similarly have the freedom now to exercise their functions by another more local authority. And it's also interesting to consider whether a defined community can assume a power to act for a defined period of time in order to take responsibility for responding to a particular local need. There is nothing to stop this as the law currently stands. A well-organised, geographically defined group can certainly negotiate with the borough to take on responsibility, for instance, for maintaining a local library or park. And in my own constituency, Lambeth Council is certainly devolving much local delivery in this way. So the key point is that the possibilities for further devolution without further legislation already exist. So that knocks one set of excuses right out of the way. And in considering the future health of London, economic success, a city to which people feel they really belong, there are lessons that we must learn from past failure. The failure to trust local authorities enough to deliver local solutions beyond national prescription 
and in turn the willingness of local authorities to trust more local initiative and to engage civil society in the delivery of local life. A periodic disregard to what matters most to local residents. You get a long way in local esteem through regular and efficient rubbish collection and clean streets. However, when asked what makes them most optimistic about London, those recently sampled by YouGov overwhelmingly referred to London's culture. <coughs> Their pessimism arose from, not surprisingly, the cost of housing and the shortage of affordable and acceptable housing. But in order for devolution to mean anything in practice, communities must also have the freedom to create new institutions, which may not necessarily, as I said, be permanent, but to exist for as long as they're needed. For example, a pop-up parish council in order to convene local opinion about a particular local issue, to resolve the issue and implement any consequent action. Intermediate organisations focus specifically on the boundary between community organisations and the local council. Both of these are ways of achieving a high level of decentralisation. But against that possibility, only one parish council has been set up in London since 2007, a ready-made format for the most local devolution. So why aren't there more? The mayor's favourite mantra is that London is the greatest city in the world. But is it really? It's obviously great for our arts, sport and most business. But as a place to live and bring up a family, as a place to start out as a school leaver with poor qualifications, London is great for the wealthy and pretty good for baby boomers. But it's certainly not the greatest place to live if you are a young person with an insecure tenancy in rented accommodation or trying to start or bring up a family on a modest income whether economically, socially or culturally, London is indeed two cities, one for the rich and comfortable and another for the poor and insecure. And that fault line is a daily danger to the long-term health of our city. Everything I've said about devolution and a more active city and local government working in partnership with local communities and local people should therefore be focused on building a stronger, fairer and more affordable London. And let me just briefly take two key challenges to exemplify this, housing and childcare. The shortage of homes, estimated at 800,000 by 2030, threatens a crisis. Average house prices are 500,000 plus and an extra 4 million trips on London transport will be made by 2023. While childcare costs, more, it costs 28% more than in the rest of the country and keeps too many mothers at home when their families <coughs> need them to be at work. Nearly half of all London's companies are reporting skill shortages. London is a city 
bursting out of its capacity. And it's simply not possible to increase dramatically the rate of house building unless local government takes the lead. And there's so much more to be said about this. In London and virtually every other urban area of the country, local authorities are not only (coughs) the planning authority, but are also the largest landowner and by far the most knowledgeable public authority when it comes to engaging with other public owners of land and with the local holdings of private house builders. Local government, therefore, needs to take a far stronger lead uh, with central government devolving more resources and the Mayor of London, city and regional agencies in other metropolitan areas all working in partnership to put in place the wider infrastructure, particularly transport links, essential to opening up new housing zones, starting with those in parts of our city. Think Hackney and swathes of East London, for starters, which have grossly inadequate transport links to support new, significant new house building and community living. And this underlines the importance of Crossrail 2 and the Bakerloo line extension and the need for the next generation of transport in London to be planned hand-in-hand with schemes for housing growth and new communities. On childcare, the challenge for working parents is to have their children looked after well and safely while they're at work. Full-time childcare for a child under two in London costs £14,000 a year, which is why, as I've uh, already said, employment among London women is low compared to other parts of the country. But there's also something else, and that is a terrible and lifelong inequality that opens up for children from disadvantaged families by the time that they are three. Just to illustrate this by saying that most of your children, by the time uh, they're three years old, will have heard 30 million sounds and words and sentences and songs and stories making up those 30 million sounds. In the families that I represent, many of the families that I represent, children will have heard half a million or a million sounds. That means that by the time that two children from different circumstances go to school, there is an almost unbridgeable life-chance-determining gap in their language development, which then affects everything else about their subsequent uh, development and opportunity. And we have to have childcare which is capable of addressing this inequality. Solutions that can be delivered by co-production with parents very locally. Parents being paid the London living wage by their employers who who recognise that decency demands it and much could be achieved through the rationalisation of children's centres, doing much more in one building uh, to support families and by using and training childminders to provide the essential flexibility 
but so many families uh, doing some of the toughest jobs to keep our city going need. In conclusion, I've called this lecture Democracy, Devolution and Decency. I've talked mostly about devolution and only a little about the other two, but I hope it will be clear, I hope it will be clear why. The missing preposition in Lincoln's stirring summary of good government, the need for politicians at all, level, at all levels to be with, that is alongside and amidst the people, is the key to how good government must now be delivered. The growing gap between those who govern and those who elect them, or increasing numbers, no longer bother with their election, has created this dangerous democratic deficit in Britain. If the people will not come to the politicians, then the politicians must come to them. And when that happens, and around the political purpose are gathered the active elements of civil society, good, decent business, and the ingenuity of local authorities, politics will be seen for what so many of us have always tried to make it, decency in action. Thank you. Well, Tessa, I wish every decision made at the LSE commanded that kind of popular support. <laughs> Thank you. We have a chance now for questions. I'll take them in uh, two or th groups of two or three for Tessa. There's somebody on the aisle over here to the left and a man in a white shirt near the center. There's two. Please say who you are when you speak. Hi there, my name is Sigi Labal from Letchworth Garden City, the world's first garden city, and thanks very much for a very interesting lecture. My question is about the new homes London needs, and you speak about housing zones. Of course you're aware that lots of people in, around the country and Letchworth Garden City is within the commuter belt in North Hertfordshire. Lots of people are afraid of uh, their green belt being destroyed. In our town, Letchworth Garden City, our town council, council was abolished, so much for democracy. Um, then there, is, there are plans to build on our green belt against the uh, voice of, voices of many local people, and over 1,000 signatures have been ignored by the um, Heritage Foundation, which runs uh, Letchworth Garden City, so much for de decency. So where, and lots of people have written to their MP and councillors, and we have not received uh, responses. So, I mean, I want to say people are willing to engage and people want to give their share to help to, uh, to uh, solve the problem of uh, the housing crisis. But the, the distrust is really, really strong now, especially outside London, because people have the feeling they're completely overruled and they have no voice. I mean, what, would you, uh, what advice would you 
give to the people of Letchworth Garden City, uh, the world's first garden city, and our green belt is really under threat. We might end up in an urban sprawl. Thanks very much. Okay, thanks. And the second question, the question. Right, thank you, Tessa. Uh, thanks for the wonderful speech. My name is Francis. I'm a student from Hong Kong. I've got two questions from you. Uh, the first is, what are your views on local, refer- ref- local referendum and how, if any, does it fit into your model of devolution? The second is, what are your thoughts of building homes on top of train stations like Hong Kong does? Because I've been walking around London and I see uh, train stations standing alone in, the, in the there, nothing on top. And I think it's just, well, there are lots of potential, put it this way. Thank you. Thank you. Want to take those two? Yes, yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, let me uh, just begin uh, on uh, the question of where, you know, land land utilisation. Um, there is, and Richard um, is, or Rogers is always telling me this. Um, there is plenty of land in London. Uh, what we need is the will to develop it. And 42%, I think it is, of the land in public ownership in London has um, an existing planning permission for, I mean, by and large, for, for residential accommodation. So we've got, just got to get on and do it. And to build, um, I mean, London has to be a live-work city. Uh, to go on being sustainable. It has to be a city where people who do the essential jobs that London needs um, can hope to live here and not uh, live at the end of the tube line with a long and expensive journey in order to get into work or not simply not be able to afford to come in to the centre of London. So mixed communities, mixed housing, working with uh, the boroughs to develop the land in the first instance, which um, many public authorities hold, not just local authorities, but the health authority, TfL, um, and so forth. And uh, then uh, you know, the, what, we, what we have to be very clear, first of all, that uh, we uh, get the uh, the degree of imperative established with the local authorities. Let them uh, get on and do it. They have to be um, in the, uh, the driving seat. But also, we have to work with developers to build uh, the kind of housing that London needs and to negotiate uh, with institutional and other investors who are looking for um, secure investment Uh, places to invest their money uh, to make it possible for local authorities to build these homes. But it's not, there is no point in simply listening to politicians talking about London's looming housing crisis. The important thing is to have a solution and answers to how that housing crisis is going uh, to be met. Realistic Uh, that can be achieved over time, the numbers of new starts every year. It is imperative if London is to continue to function after the the next next 10 years. The second, um, your question about should should homes be built 
um, on top of railway stations. Well, I think the, I certainly think that homes should be built on transport corridors, but they've also got to have the kind of amenity that means that people want to live in them. So if you're going to be woken up uh, periodically through the night with your flat or your house rattling because uh, the infrastructure isn't sufficiently secure, then probably not. But anyway, good design uh, can overcome that. And I mean, the other thing, the other important thing, of course, about public housing in London is focusing on its good design, its good amenity. And what we never want is a sense that social housing, affordable housing, is seen as housing only for the poor, because it will be poor housing. Okay. Gentleman on the aisle over here, and then they'll be up in the back there. Mark Flessing, Chief Executive of Pocket, a private sector organisation that delivers intermediate affordable housing in London. The land market is really stuck uh, in London. It's just not releasing enough land. The private sector almost has no incentive to release land at anything like the speed that we'd want to deliver the kind of housing that we need. And the public sector seems to be extraordinarily poorly geared at releasing public land. It's one of the great problems that we have in London is that public land is not released strategically. It seems to all the practitioners, and there's a remarkable amount of consensus on this, that there's not enough carrot and stick for local authorities and public land owners to release land faster. Would you agree? And secondly, do you think the GLA should have its own significant land bank of small sites? Its own what? Significant land bank of small sites. Uh Okay. And Richard? Yeah, thanks. Um, Hi, Tessa. Thanks for an excellent um, uh, talk. Uh, my name is Richard Surinjogi and I'm a student here um, at LSE and I've also worked for Citizens UK as an organiser on the Living Wage campaign. Um, you mentioned um, the great discrepancy between um, sh- children from poor backgrounds and those from wealthy ones. Um, and you also mentioned that you um, launched SureStart um, during your time in government. However, obviously the current government, uh, that's a programme that they've um, been quite keen to roll back. So what, what would be your plan to help improve the life chances of some of the most poor um, children growing up in our capital. Okay. Um, first, um, the question of hoarding, land release, public sector land, and private sector land. Um, the, uh, I mean, certainly, uh, my party, the Labour Party, has made uh, very clear that it will act against um, developers or indeed public authorities that hoard land which is available for development um, but simply use it as an appreciating asset which is why many uh, public authorities do. So, I mean, first of all, you need to get um, a government on your side in order to do that. And... uh, that's the, the first and important thing. I think the second point is that the big break on the capacity to develop um, housing at, and you know, the other buildings, you know, the other infrastructure of new communities is skill shortage. And it is a scandal that uh, unemployment among young 18 to 24-year-olds in London is running at between 23 and 25%. And these are young people who uh, may get a job for a week or so, but they don't have the skills to stay in work. 
And um, I think that you know what London needs is rather what we did with the Olympics, which is, uh, but there's always a, a bit of a time lag, which is to create the necessary skills uh, academies in construction and the other um, related skills to bring on, first of all, deal with unemployment among this uh, group of young Londoners, but then also to deal with the, the break on the capacity to develop at the pace that London is going to need. And um, the, uh, the, the, your question um, about um, what do I think can be done, I think a lot can be done by improving uh, the quality of uh, care that children have in nurseries, uh, that a lot can be done by dealing with poor levels of literacy and numeracy among their parents. I remember recently visiting a nursery and talking to a mother who had four little girls that had been through this nursery. Uh, it was a nursery that also provided um, uh, literacy classes um, for women uh, in early adulthood. And it was only when her third daughter went to the nursery that she was able to read to her daughter because by the, her contact with the nursery had enabled her to be her to be taught to read well enough then to read to her children. So I think this is why I think um, children's centres that offer more, that offer, um, you know, all this starts when young mothers are pregnant. Um, so much of this uh, life-determining inequality happens in the first thousand days of a child's life, which is why children are still having their life chances ha handed out, as it were, um, at the moment that they're born. So, you know, huge investment in uh, pregnancy, um, early infancy, early childhood for children from... You know, it's not. You, you can't say that this is something that only happens to poor children because there are plenty of poor children whose parents do um, do all these things and, the, and their children flourish. But so I would say, disadvantaging families support those parents to be the best parents that they want to be, able to uh, give their children um, the elements of the very best start they can have, and um, I think that too much childcare is actually not good enough and not sufficiently focused on this, um, on this opportunity and delivering this responsibility to very small children. Okay, great. Next questions. All right, down here in the front in the second row, um, the woman in grey on near the aisle on about the fourth row. Fifth. Okay. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah. Hi, I'm um, Joe from the, I suppose the rival Cassidy's programme at the London Metropolitan University. Uh, it's Joe from... We're from Can the you speak up? It, it, yeah, it's, is that better? Yeah, that's better. Um, yeah, I'm Joe from the Rival Cassidy's programme. Well, not Rival, but the, uh, another university has a similar <laughs> <laughs> cities programme. Um, cities. And also as a Labour Party member, it's quite a simple question. Um, what you're saying it does sound like the beginnings of a mayoral election bid. Um, <laughs> and will you be running as Mayor of London? All right, Tessa, ponder that thought for a moment. Okay. 
Uh, my name is Sally Nishaw. I'm one of your constituents, oh. and I'm also um, I work with the European Commission City Programme. So it was very interesting to hear what you're talking about in terms of city governance. Uh, my question is that what you're talking about is really a different form of governance going forward. So I'm interested to know what you think about how we encourage politicians to behave in a different way to let go of power, which is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of uh, elected representatives, and how we build the capacity and skills of people working in public servants in local authorities, because it's a different type of job when you become a broker or a mediator or somebody who's managing a contract rather than delivering services. Thank you. First of all, um, uh, 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 am I going to stand to the Mayor of London? Well, um, when the time comes, um, I'm pretty clear I'm going to uh, have a go to get the Labour... There are many hurdles in this to get the, uh, the Labour nomination. I saw, <laughs> I saw a lady, a friend of mine, um, in the gym this morning, who's a woman of about my age, who came up to me. She's Irish. And she said, Tessa, what on earth are you doing this to yourself for? <laughs> but, you know, if you have that sense of public service that many people here have, that there is something that you can give, it is pretty irresistible. But um, as I've said at the moment, uh, now's not the time for all that. The time is, I hope, to uh, get a Labour government elected at the general election. So that's what I'm focused on um, right now. Um, On the... uh, I mean, you're absolutely right about the importance of uh, different kinds of skills uh, being needed. And I think there are two things in that. First of all, the, um, the, the, the structure and form of this new, much more devolved and highly local government is, does require new skills. It also requires um, the, the people who are involved in delivering those services to feel that they have the freedom to act uh, rather than being constrained by central uh, rules. And I saw this in um, all those years ago when I was, as the old management language used to say, service sampling in Birmingham. And I was staying in a hostel for people with learning difficulties. And um, a, it was sat having um, dinner in the evening with a whole lot of the, the residents. And a couple both of whom had quite severe learning difficulties, had recently got married and came back twice a week to the hostel that had been their home and um, had dinner there, and then they went home again. And uh, on this occasion, they went home being given a couple of loaves of bread and some light bulbs and so forth. And the warden, the head of the hostel, said to me, now don't go telling them back at headquarters that we do that because we're not allowed to when actually that's the most obvious thing in the world to do to help people who may be struggling a bit to manage some of the practical obstacles to everyday everyday life so you're absolutely right this does require new skills and actually London citizens are very good um, at working in communities and helping communities develop these uh, new and different skills of brokerage but there's another point which is often forgotten in measuring the effectiveness of public services. And that's the importance of relationships that people develop. 
And uh, it's so obvious when you stop to think about it. But in 2010, uh, when the last survey of public satisfaction with the National Health Service was carried out just before um, we left uh, government because we lost the election, uh, public satisfaction with the National Health Service was at its highest ever recorded level. And the reason, the single reason uh, that people cited for their greatest faith in the National Health Service or the thing that mattered most to them was the kindness of nurses. And what we often forget is that people who are most reliant on public services or are reliant for a period of time on public services make relationships with those who provide the service to them who for that time are the most important people in their lives. You know, the nursery, the classroom assistant who, you know, to a mother who has helped her child do his homework for the first time and gives lots of reinforcement becomes so important. The people who, uh, the carers who come in and turn an elderly person and make sure she's comfortable at night while being able to be in her own home. This is the stuff of public service and we so often, in measurement and professionalising and all the kind of management speak of managing services, forget that. Okay, let's have the last two questions. This is one in the very back and one gentleman with a red tie near the aisle. Hi, uh, my name is Greg Taylor. I'm from Croydon. Um, so in Croydon, they're currently uh, planning to build lots of new flats. Um, I think that's probably part of the devolution of London, to, and uh, it's an idea by uh, Boris, I think, to get more flats there. So I think this is an idea that happens. I'll, t I'll try and speak up when I'm still talking to Tessie so you can hear me. Actually, if you could move your microphone as well, we could hear you a bit better as well. Can you move your microphone? I'll move my microphone. Well, that, okay. <laughs> right, that, that, maybe that. <laughs> maybe that'll help me. Anyway, um, yeah, so basically my point is that if you have a devolved government and you have someone like Boris talking up for London and getting more houses built in London, it's kind of can be quite a selfish um, idea and that you get, you get more houses in London, you get London growing, but maybe that isn't the best thing for the country as a whole or even the people of London because you get a, a more highly populated city where people don't really want to live but they have to because that's where all the jobs are. Maybe if you have a less evolved system and you have a, a government looking out for the whole country, they can try and uh, push money into, see cities in the north um, and try and develop those places more. Yeah. So okay. what are you doing to try and make that happen? Or are you doing anything as a London MP? <laughs> okay, good on that. And now the woman in, in purple in the very back. Thank you. Uh, good evening, um, Professor Kalun, and thank you. Uh, and thank you very much, Dam Tassa, for your uh, wonderful, insightful uh, speech. Um, I was a scholar in Japan for a year and then happened to, I mean, I was in Tokyo and then happened to come to London with a perception that London is the presumably financial capital and one of the greatest uh, cities of the world. But coming here, I was uh, in a big cultural shock considering the transportation system, the housing facilities, etc. I just wonder, um, is it structural that 
London wants to retain a particular, I don't know who so are the policy planners, that they want to retain a particular character to the city. Uh, Tokyo has land shortage. 70% of Japan is covered by mountains. But why not we go into creating more skyscrapers or better infrastructure? And even you mentioned that London is just retaining 7% of the revenues. Couldn't it be better that that revenue invested or reinvested to create more opportunities and wealth and et cetera, et cetera, modernization? Thank you. Great. Thank you. Okay, thank okay. you. Um, thank you very much for those, um, for those two questions. Um, t- I think the, the answer um, to the first question is recognizing the interdependence between London and uh, cities in the rest of the, the UK. And um, I think it does sometimes. Uh, sometimes the argument um, is presented in a way that does sound as if London um, is kind of cutting loose and becoming sort of unilateral a city-state. That's not the point at all. Um, the, conne- the interconnection between London and uh, city, the, the great cities of the rest of the, the UK, but particularly the cities of England, is incredibly important uh, to maintain, um, both for the benefit of their local Economies, but also um, for the benefit of London. But um, underpinning that with improved uh, transport links, uh, particularly, I think will deal with some of the, uh, the great problems of overheating that can undermine um, the, uh, the sort of the livability, the broader sort of livability of London. And um, the second, uh, your second question about which, which I think I take to be about what kind of development. And I think that uh, we certainly don't want, um, we certainly don't want to move to a point where there's a single formula. We've kind of learnt the uh, errors of that approach to development. And here again, I think, uh, devolution to local authorities, um, the GLA working with local authorities, um, particularly in the the relevant local authorities in the approval of large uh, developments is absolutely um, critical. But I think that we shouldn't, I mean, this should be the decade of building homes in London and building mixed communities in London. But the richness of London is enhanced by those communities being really diverse in their design and also in the people that live there. Okay. I want to stress that I think we've learned at least two crucial things here tonight. One of them is that there's a really good reason that we have a professor of practice focused on cities and based in the Department of Government because of the extraordinary um, integration of the issues of government and of cities that go beyond design. And second, that it's going to be a disaster for the LSE if all of our great faculty start running for uh, mayor of London. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it might be wonderful for London if one of them does. Tessa, thank you for being here.